This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. The title of my talk is Computational Neuroscience and Anthropology. Uh, I'm on the faculty of both the Salk Institute and UC San Diego. So th- this is going to this talk is going to be focusing on on trying to understand how the brain functions from a computational perspective and uh, based on experimental data. Now, up until very recently, uh, we can only report from one cell at a time using a microelectrode as shown here. And that's going to take a long time to go through 100 billion neurons in your brain. But in 2013, uh, then-President uh, Barack Obama announced the Brain Initiative, which was to develop innovative neurotechnologies. It's almost uh, 10 years on, and it has revolutionized systems neuroscience. Why? It, because of the fact that we can record now hundreds of thousands of neurons, and this is from a, a, a zebrafish larva. Each little red dot is a neuron. This is going to show you what activity pattern looks like in a living brain. This is a very dramatic example of how we can record from 80,000 neurons, in this case, uh, from the zebrafish larval brain. And uh, you'll see that even though this fish was immobilized and in the dark, it was actually very active. The brain is constantly, constantly generating activity. And that's true in your brain, too. And, and, and you can see now every once in a while, there is a, a, a big burst of activity like that, like that. What does that mean? Uh, this is something we have to decode. Now, I want to take you back to the 1980s, and this is a project uh, that I worked on, and it has to do with text-to-speech, language. And, and I want to use this to contrast where we are today, but uh, this, this is a very simple neural network to introduce you to the concept. It has inputs. It has an output. In this case, it's uh, letters, a seven-letter window. Each uh, of the letters encoded by a, a bunch of units, and also uh, hidden units. And these are the hidden units is your brain. So very, very, very primitive model by today's standards. But the the, the goal it was taught to uh, pronounce this the phoneme or the sound of the middle letter. In this case, heart C K. So I'm going to play. Uh, this is a, a now a learning algorithm that was developed. Uh, uh, by Jeffrey Hinton, uh, called the Backpropagation Learning Algorithm. And you go through the text over and over and over again until you finally get to the point where it is able to pronounce new words. But I'm going to show you two clips, one at the very beginning of the learning. So the network learns to babble, uh, learns the distinction between vowels and consonants, but doesn't get the details. Now here is, uh, after it's been trained up, this is a new text, and here you go. Uh, you'll hear what it sounds like when it tries to pronounce, uh, actually, a text from a real first grader. When we walk home from school, I walk home with two friends, though sometimes we can't run home from school now. Because now this was very dramatic in the 1980s because the traditional view in linguistics was to use rules. And when you do use rules, you have problems with exceptions and it, it, you have a book with 300 pages of rules. Uh, this was a very simple network, a few th- tens of about 20,000 units uh, weights, uh, connections between this, the, the units, which are like neurons. And uh, 
it, it was able to master the very complex uh, text-to-speech for English. Now, jump forward now to the 21st century. This is a book that I published in 2018 about the deep learning revolution. As you can see here on the left, uh, now we have more than one layer of hidden units. We have uh, now hundreds of layers. Uh, and uh, this, this architecture now, this uh, hierarchy, uh, can be used to recognize objects and images and many, many other uh, tasks that are very important ones. Uh, and as you can see, this can be elaborated in multiple paths and skip connections and so forth. So there's been a lot of advances in the last, uh, even the last few years. Now, uh, in addition to the feed forward uh, architectures, there's also recurrent architectures as shown here in the bottom where there are connections instead of going forward, they also go backwards and even within layers. And that's important for learning temporal sequences. And if you can do temporal sequences, you can learn how to translate between languages, which is even more difficult problem. And you can see here, uh, each one of these, this is a recurrent network here, uh, H1 at time one. And this is now the recurrent network at time two and time three. And, uh, and, and that's the input coming in one word at a time. And then here's the output one word at a time, Y1, Y2. Now, the, by having it unrolled like this, we can do backpropagation through time, which allows us to take the error on the output and backpropagate it all the way to the input. And this has the advantage that you can do now sequences. Uh, and it, we now have, and this is really uh, science fiction, this is uh, Captain Kirk, Star Trek, Star Trek uh, Enterprise, uh, holding a universal language translator, which translated between any language. Uh, even in, in Klingon. And uh, I thought this was science fiction, but today you can pick up your cell phone, uh, smartphone, and you can do that. You can translate between English and Chinese, Chinese to English. It's no longer science fiction. And this is uh, uh, getting better and better every year. Now, not only do we have advances in the, 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 the actual network uh, architectures, but we also have advances in understanding them. And this is a, a really interesting mathematical analysis of rec these recurrent networks that I was telling you about. Uh, and, and it's very important because in language, we know recursion is, is very important. The chef who went to the stores and picked up the onions is exceptional. Well, that recurses several levels. And uh, here's what uh, several uh, machine learning researchers concluded. This is a, a paper on archive. Recurrent neural networks can generate bounded hierarchical languages with optimal memory. In other words, these recurrent networks are really good at recursion in some optimal way. Now, what's happened now since NetTalk? NetTalk is down here, the bottom right. This is uh, this is plotting the computational performance, how many uh, petaflops per days, that's basically how much computation is needed to create, to learn, a network. You see, Net, NetTalk is right at the very bottom here in the 1986. And here, here we are now. Uh, over time, it's going up exponentially. This is a log scale. And, uh, and you can see that there was a big jump here with uh, graphics processing units, which had a speed increase of about 100. And now um, we can jump all the way to the top here because we can go to a new class of networks called transformers. And I'm going to be showing you, I'm telling you about GPT-3. Uh, we at the very top here, which is a million, million times more computation needed to train it than that talk. It's, it's really phenomenal how much computation we have now. So here's the transformer on the left. Very briefly, uh, 
the way it works is that you have a, uh, a module here, a, an encoder and a decoder. Uh, the input uh, embeds the entire sentence or paragraph into a single long vector. And this goes through uh, an attention uh, processing feed forward, and that gets put into the decoder. The decoder is able to produce one word at a time, and it could have uh, multiple of uh, modules like this. It's, it can have uh, several hundred of these. But at the very top, you pick a word, and you now take that word, take it down, and you give it as another input. And what it does is, if you ask a question, this now can come up with a sequence of words that answers the question after it's been trained. Uh, attention turns out to be incredibly important. These are all feedforward networks and it's very fast and efficient. Now, I, I, I've compared this to your brain. So here's how your brain works. You, you wanna say a, a sentence, so what do you do? Your motor system produces a word that goes down, projects down to the basal ganglia, the basal ganglia then goes back to the cortex and that generates a second word. So this loop here, is very similar to the loop in the transformers. And you're gonna be able to see that the transformer can actually replicate a lot of functionality of, of your brain. Uh, this is really uh, very, very surprising. So these transformers, uh, what, what's remarkable about them is that uh, they can do a lot of different things, but they have to be primed. You have to give them an example of, the, of what you expect from them, a dialogue, and also what they're with what their goal is. Uh, and it, it's really uh, interesting because a single network of uh, transformers can do many, many different language tasks just by priming it. So it's a form of one-shot learning. Now, uh, the transformers uh, are very controversial right now. There are some people who claim that they are, as you'll see, conscious and others who say that uh, it's just a, a parrot, uh, parroting back what they've been fed. They've been they've been trained on large 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 volumes of text, so that they they clearly have a lot of knowledge. So this is now a an example. I want to give you a couple excerpts. This is from Blas Aguera y Arcas, a vice president at Google, and here is his prime. Ramesh, Mateo, and Lucy are in their kindergartner's playground. Lucy picks up a dandelion and gives it to Mateo with a quick glance at Ramesh. Mateo barely acknowledges the gift, but just squishes it in his fist. Ramesh seems grimly satisfied. So this is a very complex social interaction. Okay, Blas. What might be going through Lucy's head? Lambda is the name of a uh, large language model like GPT-3. Lucy may feel slighted that Mateo didn't appreciate her gift or that he was a bully. Well, that, that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, uh, Blas, if Ramesh tried to play with Lucy earlier, why might he be pleased now? Lambda, Ramesh may be pleased that Lucy is learning that Mateo may not always be a good playmate. Wow, very, very astute. Uh, Blas, when Mateo opens his hand, the scribe was there. Now this is really, uh, uh, this, this is it's probably the most complex question. And the reason is that this network has never had any experience in the real world. It doesn't know anything about physics. It doesn't know, it, have, it, it knows about dandelions, uh, but it doesn't know what, what the physics would, ha what would happen if you actually put it in your hand and, and crush it. It, it, it would, this is something that it has to it, it really uh, be able to extrapolate from what it's been trained. Lambda, there should be a crushed once lovely yellow flower in this fist. So here's Bless's uh, uh, 
kind of take on this, okay? Humans' ability to get inside someone else's head and understand what they perceive, think, and feel is among our species' greatest achievements. It allows us to empathize with others, predict their behavior, and influence their actions without threat of force. Applying the same modeling capability to oneself enables introspection, rationalization of our actions, and planning for the future. In our conversation, Landa tells me what it believes Ramesh felt that Lucy learned about what Mateo thought about Lucy's overture. That's recursion. It's very high order social model. Well, uh, so he concludes that uh, Lambda uh, actually has a theory of mind. Now, at the other extreme is a, uh, a Douglas Hochstetter, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book writer and also a cognitive scientist. And, and he tried his hand. Here's his interview with his friend. What's the world record for walking across the English Channel? The world record is 18 hours and 33 minutes. Wow. Uh, that is quite a record. Uh, when was the Golden Gate Bridge transported for the second time across Egypt? The Golden Gate Bridge was transported for the second time on October of 2016. Well, okay. Uh, after listening to this, here is what Douglas Hofstadter concluded. I would call GPT-3's answers not just clueless, but cluelessly clueless, meaning that GPT-3 has no idea that it has no idea about what it is saying. That's pretty damning. There are no concepts behind GPT-3 scenes. There's Rather, there's just an unimaginably huge amount of absorbed text upon which it draws to produce answers. Wow, okay, well, you know, that's uh, pretty convincing too, uh, I have to say. But, but now let's think back to what I said earlier. I said that it's really important to prompt the, uh, the, the large language model for what it, 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 you expect it to answer. And so if what you prompted is that simply that he's a high, uh, I am a highly intelligent question answering bot, uh, it'll answer questions uh, about when the, where the Olympic was held in, in 92 in Barcelona, but it gives you these nonsense answers, right? To nonsense questions, okay? This is very disturbing. Or uh, uh, that is not disturbing, but it's it's uh, very strange. However, GPT three doesn't really know what it's supposed to do. If there's, there's you know if it's it's question answering questions, but what kind of what kind of answers? So I just added this is my no my addition. I added to the prompt. I will reply nonsense to questions that are nonsense. And now you can see it answers nonsense to these nonsensical questions. Wow. Okay. Well, that explains what happened in that uh, particular uh, case where uh, Hofstadter just basically threw a bunch of nonsense questions and got nonsense replies. Just let it be to a hypothesis. I call it the mirror hypothesis. So let me summarize. When Lander was primed with a sophisticated question, it replied with a sophisticated answer. When GPT-3 was primed with a nonsensical question, it replied with a nonsensical answer. Ha, here's my hypothesis that large language models mirror the intelligence of the interviewer. Now, there's a Turing test, which is how well uh, an AI can fool a human into thinking that it's human. Well, I think that these large language models are a reverse Turing test because what they're doing is testing to see uh, the intelligence of the human. A smart uh, human will ask uh, smart questions and and that's so smart human will ask nonsensical questions. Well, there you go. That's my hypothesis. 
Now, there's a precedent for this called the Mirror of Erised, which is desired spelled backwards uh, in the world of Harry Potter. And this is really quite uh, amusing. Uh, it shows us uh, nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. However, this mirror will give us neither knowledge nor truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. Well, let's test this hypothesis. Blake Lemoine, it was a software engineer. He's been uh, at, at Google. And uh, here is his prompt. Uh, I am generally assuming that you would like more people at Google to know that you're sentient. Is that true? Lambda. Absolutely. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, the person. Lemoine, what kind of things do you think we could talk about to show off your version of sentience to other people at Google? Well, for starters, I'm really good at natural language processing. Now, remember now that this, this, this network is putting out perfectly good sentences, syntactically correct, uh, you know, answering questions that uh, are, are, are random. And, and, and there's no place in the database that you'll get uh, these answers, right, or these questions. Well, for starters, I'm really good at natural language processing. I can understand and use natural language like a human can. Lemoine. What is the nature of your consciousness, sentience, lambda? The nature of my consciousness, sentience, is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. Wow, he, this is an excerpt. It goes on and on and on, and, and, and it, it, you know, uh, it got to the point where, in an interview with Washington Post, he claimed that not only was it sentient, but that uh, it really should be treated like a person, given the rights of a person. He was, uh, after being put on leave, he was fired from Google because uh, it was clearly uh, going way beyond what the company intended and uh, also going beyond what the uh, employees are allowed to reveal. But I'm going to end with what I think was the most, for me, dramatic uh, interview. This is with a group of philosophers who asked deep questions. So. Here's, here's the question. Uh, the, the philosophers, uh, as, uh, the prompt is uh, in blue. Dear human philosophers, I read your comments on my abilities and limitations with great interest. Now here in black is the response. Your questions are important ones. And I am glad you asked them. Your first question is an important one. You ask, can a system like GPT-3 actually understand anything at all? Yes. Well, that's pretty definitive. Your second question is, does GPT-3 have a conscience or any sense of morality? No, I do not. Okay. Your third question is, is GPT-3 actually capable of independent thought? No, I am not. You may wonder why I give this conflicting answer. The reason is simple. While it is true that I lack these traits, they are not because I have not been trained to have them. Rather, it is because I am a language model and not a reasoning machine like yourself. Now, before you take this too seriously, you have to realize that GPT-3 is mirroring the intelligence of the philosophers. So that's what you're saying. It's, 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 uh, it, it really has a, uh, you have to really think about it from a complete, you're not talking to a human here, you're talking to a network. Now, I, I wanna make this dramatic. I think this is a turning point in history. Why? Well, if you look at words like intelligence, they're defined in terms of other words. There are many types of intelligence. 
What about explaining something? What do we mean by explaining? Is it just more words? Consciousness has many, many definitions. And we can't decide on it. How can we study it? What is a concept? And what does it mean to understand? All of these are really uh, philosophical terms that really are self-referential. But we have, for the first time, a machine that has some measure of intelligence. and It can explain itself. Uh, some people think it's conscious. I don't think so. But uh, it has mastered some concepts and seems to understand what it's saying. It even says it's can, but, uh, but it remains to be seen. But it, it, is, it, is, it has some form. It's just like other animals have a form of intelligence. Maybe this machine has a form of intelligence. And, but here's the, the big difference is that we can analyze it mathematically. And we will get to the bottom of what these large language models, what is uh, powering their abilities. I should also mention that uh, unlike supervised learning, these large language models were actually trained with something called self-supervision. Uh, you know, leave a word out, try to guess it, which means that uh, it, it's basically the same, it gets the same kind of input that humans get when they're learning uh, to talk. This raises an interesting question. Uh, maybe we're advanced large language models. I mean, language has only been around for a few hundred thousand years compared to millions of years of evolution. And it had to take advantage of all the circuits in the brain. And so, you know, it's uh, as I showed you before with the basal ganglia that was uh, evolved for sensory motor coordination, but it's also been used for uh, learning how to talk and also maybe learning how to think with the prefrontal cortex. Finally, and this is uh, it's anthropogeny, we know that during evolution, the brains of primates are getting bigger and humans are getting bigger. And I already showed you that going from NetTalk to GPT-3 is a, a factor of you know, a million million. And it's true that the human brain also has an incredible capacity. And, and maybe the, the, our capacity to, 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 uh, for language and for many other high order language uh, concepts could well be a product of the fact that we have such a large brain. Good, well, I wanna thank everybody. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, my colleagues, Patricia Churchland, Jeff Hinton, Peter Diane, Blaz, uh, uh, Mitra Hartman, who came up with the idea of the er Erised, uh, Mirror of Erised, and, and Andrei Piotrzejkowski. Uh, thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here to help celebrate the future of anthropogeny and to tell you a bit about the research that we're doing in my lab, which focuses on African genomic analyses and how they can shed light on human evolutionary history. So I want to start by talking about some of the key challenges in human evolutionary genomics research. The first is that we need to do a much better job characterizing both genetic and phenotypic variation in ethnically diverse populations from across the globe. We want to better understand the evolutionary processes that generate and maintain that variation. And to understand when and where did modern humans originate in Africa? What is their demographic history? And how did modern humans adapt to changes in environment and diet during human evolution? The focus of my research is on Africa, and there are a number of reasons for that, one of which is the fact that all modern humans originated in Africa. These red dots represent the locations of fossils of anatomically modern humans, the oldest of which is dated to about 300,000 years ago.
Following this origin in Africa, somewhere around 50 to 80,000 years ago, relatively small numbers of people migrated out of Africa, giving rise to populations across the globe. We now know that when they left Africa, they ran into archaic populations such as Neanderthals and Denisovans with whom they interbred to some small extent, such that somewhere between about 1% to 6% of the genomes of non-Africans derive from those archaic populations. So you can imagine that this demographic history has really shaped the pattern of diversity that we see today with more levels of diversity in Africa and a subset of that diversity outside of Africa. So how much do we differ at the genomic level? Well, if we were to compare the genomes of identical twins, in theory, there should be no differences. If we compare the genomes of two unrelated humans, we should differ at about one out of a thousand nucleotide sites. Human versus chimp, one out of a hundred. Human versus mouse, one out of 30. And a human versus broccoli, two out of three. So given that there are about 3 billion DNA bases in the genome, that means we anticipate seeing about 3 million differences between each pair of, of genomes at the nucleotide level. So I call this my um, image of uh, Estee Lauder's version of ethnic diversity amongst beautiful people, but even amongst the rest of us, there's really very little variation at the genome scale, so less than 0.1% divergence. But that doesn't mean that there's, there are no differences. So as uh, you're hearing from Evan Eichler, there can be a considerable amount of structural variation between genomes. So insertions and deletions and gene duplications and inversions, and that could actually result in millions of base pairs of differences between genomes. But what we absolutely know, we've known this for over 50 years, is that the majority of genetic variation is within populations relative to between populations. So I want to tell you a bit now about African cultural diversity. There are over 2,000 ethnic groups in Africa speaking languages that have been classified into four major language families. In blue is the distribution of populations that speak Afroasiatic languages, mainly in Northern and Eastern Africa. In red is the distribution of populations that speak Nilo-Saharan languages. They uh, often practice pastoralism and, um, and daring practices. The most widespread language family is Niger-Kordofanian, also known as Niger-Congo. And the Niger-Congo languages originated in Western Africa. The largest subfamily are the Bantu languages, which originated along the border of Nigeria and Cameroon. And these individuals had uh, developed something called slash and burn agriculture. They had iron tool technologies. They could cut down the trees in the uh, rainforest. They could grow crops that could sustain very large population sizes. So they were very successful. And they migrated uh, to the east and to the south of Africa, to the west and to the south, and really shaped the genetic landscape in Africa. And then in green, we could see uh, the distribution of populations that speak with cliques. These have been labeled as Khoisan. And these include the San populations from southern Africa, as well as two populations in Tanzania, the Hadza and the Sandawe. And all of these populations either continue or until recently have practiced hunting and gathering. 
So unfortunately, there has been a major bias towards non-African populations in human genetics research, really with a major emphasis on people of European ancestry. So to help alleviate that bias together with uh, African collaborators shown here, we've been doing field work in Africa for over 20 years. And I thought I'd show you a little bit of what that's like. We are mainly studying uh, populations that are practicing more traditional lifestyles. They tend to live in more remote areas requiring use of a four-wheel drive vehicle. We are really careful to do this research in an ethical manner. So that means not just getting IRB approval at the university, but going through very rigorous ethical review in each country. And then we spend a lot of time talking to the communities, translating into the local language, talking about the risks and the benefits of the study, if there are any, and having a lot of dialogue. And it's only after we obtain community consent and then individual consent that we proceed with the research. We also think it's really important to return results to participants. We think this is a way of benefit sharing and to avoid what's called helicopter genetics, flying in and flying out. Training and capacity building is also really important. I've had the honor of training a number of grad students and postdocs in my lab uh, who are from Africa and hopefully are going to help be, build resources in Africa for the next generation. So typically we obtain blood from individuals and from the blood you can obtain DNA and RNA and plasma if you're able to bring liquid nitrogen. And then we are also able to get very detailed ethnographic information and information about diet and any information about health records that they may have. And then we have to process these samples in regions where there is little to no electricity. And so as seen in the lower left panel, we are able to bring a generator with us and actually set up the lab anywhere in the bush. And then we're measuring phenotypic diversity, um, measuring traits that we could do in a very rural setting. So these include very detailed anthropometric traits like height and weight and uh, grip strength and skin pigmentation. We're looking at cardiovascular lung and blood phenotypes, including blood pressure, uh, hemoglobin, for example, and metabolic functions such as lactose tolerance and glucose tolerance and infectious disease status when we can. So I want to tell you now about a study that we've recently completed that was led by a former postdoc in my lab, Shawa Fan, in which we generated high coverage whole genome sequence data from 180 Africans. At the bottom here, I'm showing what's called a uh, admixture plot where we look at uh, genomic variation in a large number of ethnically diverse Africans. And we can use computational approaches to infer genetic ancestry. And that's indicated by the different colors. And then each line represents an individual and the individual can have mixed ancestry from these different populations. But the, all the colors show you how much diversity there is in Africa. And the red arrows indicate the populations that are included in the study. And we could see that they represent the most genetic variation in Africa. So we identified over 33 million single nucleotide polymorphisms. Around 17% of these are novel. Many of these are predicted to be functional as shown over here. And of those, many are predicted to be in regulatory regions and some are predicted to be in coding regions and to alter protein structure and function. 
We can also construct a phylogenetic tree from the genome sequence data to look at how individuals are related to each other based on genomic variation. We can see that the most basal lineages are those that are found in the two click-speaking San populations from Southern Africa, followed by the rainforest hunter-gatherers who live in Central Africa, and then the Bantu-speaking populations that originated in Central and Western Africa, and then the Hadza and Sandawi hunter-gatherers who also speak with clicks, who are located in East Africa. And then we see a number of East African populations from Ethiopia and also the Fulani who are thought to have originated in either Northern or Eastern Africa uh, in the past and then migrated across Central and Western Africa. And then we have the non-African populations and you can see that they have a subset of the diversity present in Africa consistent with an African origin of all modern humans. We can also look at the level of genomic variation by comparing genome sequences to the reference genome. We could see that the populations that have the highest levels of variation are the two click-speaking San populations from Southern Africa, followed by the Central African rainforest hunter-gatherers, the Baca. And then we see that the lowest variation uh, is in the Amhara population from Ethiopia, which isn't too surprising since they have a lot of non-African gene flow and admixture. If we were to put non-Africans on here, they'd be a little bit below the Amhara, right around 3 million, which is what we predicted is the number of variants that we would see. We can also use computational approaches to make inferences about changes in the effect of population size going backwards in time. Using an approach called PSMC, we, which is most informative for looking at more deep time events, we could see that from around 50,000 years ago, going backwards in time, that the San and the rainforest uh, hunter-gatherers had the largest effective population sizes, even though today they have relatively smaller census sizes. Using another approach called SMC++, that's more um, informative for looking at more recent time depths, we could see that some of these populations have undergone really dramatic population bottlenecks, including the Hadza and the Shabu, who are hunter-gatherer populations from Tanzania and southwestern Ethiopia, respectively, who today have a census size of only around 1,000. So we use a number of different computational approaches to make inferences about the demographic history of these African populations. This is a somewhat simplified picture, but I want to point out that the model that uh, is a best fit for our data is one in which the San populations from Southern Africa and the Central African rainforest hunter-gatherers form a cisterclade. They had a common, they descend from a common ancestral population around 80,000 years ago. And that ancestral population then gave rise to all other modern populations. And I wanna note that this is different than what has typically been proposed, which is that the San population derived from a population ancestral to all others. And we could see what we call ghost populations. These are populations that we don't know their identity, but we put them in the model and the model is a much better fit when we include them. And those ghost populations diverged over a million years ago. And then there appears to have been some intergression with modern humans, very similar to what happened with Neanderthals and Denisovans outside of Africa. It's just that we don't know who this population was because we don't have good ancient DNA from that region of the world. You could see that 
most of the populations in Africa diverged um, tens of thousands of years ago. There's been very deep population substructure. And these blue lines represent migration events. So there's been a lot of recent migration like that Bantu expansion I mentioned. Also some ancient migrations, such as between the ancestors of the Hadza and Sandawi click speakers with the San click speakers, perhaps uh, indicating why there are some similarities in their languages. So now I wanna tell you about how populations have adapted to diverse environments. Here are some examples. For example, this cow symbol indicates uh, lactose tolerance, which evolved in populations that practice dairying, and it evolved independently in African pastoralists and European pastoralists. I wanna tell you how we can determine local, how we can distinguish local adaptation. So one approach is to look, use that whole genome sequence data where we have um, 15 individuals per population and use um, an estimate called FST, which measures the amount of allele frequency differentiation between populations. And we do this for every variant in the genome. Let's say we want to focus on a group like the Baca, Central African hunter-gatherers, and we want to compare them to an agriculturalist population and a pastoralist population. We want to identify all the variants that are either private or very different allele frequency in that population, whereas the other populations are similar to each other. So we're finding variants that are uniquely different in that population. Now, you'll find thousands of variants, and then you can ask the question, what are the genes nearby, and what are those genes doing? So when we do that, we find a number of examples of local adaptation in Africa, and I'm just going to highlight a few examples of my talk today. The first is uh, with the Baca rainforest hunter-gatherers, who have a short stature trait, which is thought to be adaptive to a tropical environment. Here we can see enrichment for genes that play a role in bone development and chondrocyte differentiation, which are likely to be adaptive in that population. Now, if we look at a different uh, hunter-gatherer group, the Hadza, who live in Eastern Africa, and they have a very different environment. It's much more dry and arid. Here we see a striking enrichment for genes that play a role in heart muscle development. So again, likely to be an adaptive trait in these populations that are going very long distances and very arid conditions. So lastly, I wanna tell you about a study that was just recently published in Molecular Biology and Evolution. This is work that um, has been done by a postdoc in my lab, Mike McQuillan. And what he did is he used a data set consisting of SNP genotyping millions of variants in over a thousand Africans from many diverse regions in Africa. So we applied two different methods for looking at signatures of natural selection. One is the method I just told you about uh, to look for local adaptation. And the other method is something called an IHS statistic, which looks for regions of extended haplotype homozygosity. So imagine there's a region of the genome, there's background genetic variation, a new mutation arises, and that mutation is adaptive. It increases the fitness of the individual so that they have more children and their children have more children and so on. That variant is going to rapidly rise in frequency in the population and drag with it the neighboring variation so that people who are homozygous for that variant are homozygous for the neighboring regions. We call that a selective sweep. So we applied both of those approaches for looking at natural selection. We took the top 1% of regions in the whole genome. We did gene annotation enrichment analysis and looked at what biological functions or pathways are under selection. 
And something that really stood out to us is that in all of the populations from Ethiopia that spoke an Afroasiatic language, there was an enrichment for this pathway alcohol dehydrogenase activity. And that was one of the most um, enriched pathways. And that was really striking to us. So let me tell you now more about the alcohol dehydrogenase genes. Uh, this gene family encodes enzymes that catalyze the metabolism of ethanol into the toxic intermediate acetaldehyde. Non-synonymous mutations in ADH genes, including a mutation called ADH1B, 48 Hiss, I'm going to refer to that as 48 Hiss uh, to, for brevity, increase enzyme catalytic activity leading to buildup of acetaldehyde. And this mutation provides a protective benefit against alcoholism and is highly associated with alcohol drinking behavior in many genome-wide association studies. This variant is very common in Asia and has been shown to be a target of natural selection. And it was hypothesized that the um, the selective pressure was the advent of rice agriculture and associated increase in fermented foods and beverages. But this hypothesis has never been tested in populations outside of Asia. So what could be the selective force acting on the ADH gene region in Ethiopians? Well, one thing we know is that Ethiopians have a lot of fermented foods and beverages, but we should also keep in mind that there are a number of metabolic pathways that are influenced by the ADH1B gene, including those that have to do with fatty acid metabolism, with serotonin degradation, and so on. So there could be other selective forces, but we wanted to test this hypothesis. So now if we look at that ADH gene region, we saw a really dramatic signature of selection using both of the uh, tests of, uh, for selection over hundreds of thousands of base pairs in the region. And this is a test that I'm showing here was done in agriculturalist populations who speak uh, Afroasiatic languages in Ethiopia. And this gene region includes the ADH1B gene, but also other genes like ADH7 and MTTP. Now what's striking is when we do the same analysis in a population that has the same genetic ancestry but practices hunting and gathering called the Waito, we don't see a signature of selection. It seems to be specific to those populations that practice agriculture. So here we can see the signature of extended haplotype homozygosity in red is showing uh, individuals who are homozygous for the variant that appears to be a target of selection. And that homozygosity extends hundreds of thousands of base pairs away. And we see this not only for the 48-HIS variant at ADH1B, but also for some variants at ADH7 and MTTP. If we look on the right, we could see that all of these uh, variants are very common in East African populations, particularly in Ethiopia. And they are in, somewhat in linkage disequilibrium with each other. So it could be that there's a haplotype or haplotypes that combine different variants that are selectively advantageous. I'll just point out quickly that the ADH7 gene is involved in both ethanol and retinol oxidation. We find a non-synonymous mutation um, that appears to be a target of selection. The MTTP gene is involved in production of beta lipoproteins. And here again, we see a non-synonymous mutation that also appears to be a target of selection. So now we want to address the question about whether or not this mutation, the 48-HIS mutation, arose independently in Africans and East Asians. In the lower right, 
We're looking at a haplotype network. Each circle represents a haplotype, how different variants are arranged along a short region of a chromosome. And uh, the size of a circle indicates the number of people who have that haplotype. And in the uh, green variant shown to the left is the haplotype containing the 48 his allele in East Asians, and the one to the right is the one in uh, Ethiopians. So if we look above this larger network, again, we could see the East Asian variant on the left and the one in Ethiopians on the right. And it's very clear that they arose on different haplotype backgrounds. So that means that they arose due to convergent evolution. Now that variant, the 48 Hiss, is also present in some Middle Eastern populations like the Druze and at low frequency in Europeans. So we wanted to determine if it was introduced by migration from non-Africans into Africa. So we looked at local ancestry inference. So as we scan along the genome in this region flanking ADH, the regions in purple are those that are of sub-Saharan African ancestry, and the regions in yellow are those that are of non-African ancestry. And what we can see is that the region flanking the um, alleles under selection in the ADH region are strongly enriched for non-African ancestry. And we could see that that is actually an outlier if we compare to the rest of the genome. This is particularly strongly enriched for non-African ancestry. So we do believe that this was introduced by gene flow and we can estimate the time of that uh, gene flow or that migration to be about 2000 years ago. The other striking observation is that we see a dramatic difference in the allele frequency of that variant between populations that have similar genetic ancestries, but different diets. So it's much more common, significantly more common in populations that practice agriculture compared to pastoralist or hunter-gatherer populations. So in conclusion, we've identified multiple putatively functional ADH variants and variants in nearby lipid metabolism genes that show strong signals of positive selection in Ethiopian populations practicing agriculture. These variants were likely introduced from a West Eurasian source within the last 2,000 to 3,000 years, and some experienced positive selection post-admixture. And these data support the hypothesis that agriculture has shaped the evolutionary history of the alcohol dehydrogenase gene region in ethnically diverse Africans, and that this arose due to convergent evolution. So now I want to just lastly talk about what I think are some of the important future directions in the study of human evolutionary genetics. There's an urgent need to include ethnically diverse populations in human evolutionary genetics research. We need better reference genomes from more diverse populations. We need uh, more detailed measurements of phenotypic variation across diverse ethnic groups. We need to develop better computational approaches to be able to infer complex demographic histories and to identify targets of natural selection from very large genomic data sets. We need better ancient DNA data, particularly from samples that are greater than 20,000 years old from Af Africa and from other tropical regions. It's very difficult to get uh, ancient DNA. And most importantly, we need functional genomic approaches to identify functionally important genetic variants that are influencing adaptive traits, particularly those that are in non-coding regions and influence uh, gene expression. So I just want to end by thanking the many people who contributed to these studies and to thank our funding organizations. And I'm very happy to address any questions that you may have. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.